Everybody, this is Yochaved, and welcome to this episode of A Deeper Conversation. You're about to hear a conversation that I had with my friend, Abby Deluya. Now, Abby and I have been friends for a long time. I think going back about 17 years, actually, I was starting a new job at a school in Vancouver, and a woman sat down next to me, and she said, you and I need to be friends. It was like a I would say like a community school and I was one of the only Orthodox teachers there and this woman who sat down next to me turned out to be Abby's mother. Abby's mother, Sari, Allah Shalom, was the most incredible woman, an incredible educator, a deeply Jewish woman, very traditional and Abby has since moved sort of, I guess, past her, you know, her family and observance but her mother said to me at the time you and I have to be friends because my daughter Abby is on a journey at the time she was in seminary in Israel and she said she's going to come back home to Vancouver and she's going to need a support system so if you and I are friends she'll have you and actually that's exactly what happened and Abby and I became friends and have stayed friends and stayed connected to this day now I you know I was on Jordana Barajas podcast a while back and she asked me what was my favorite episode that I did and my response to her was okay that's like asking me to pick my favorite child I don't have like a favorite episode because every podcast that I do whether it's a topic that I'm researching or somebody that I am lucky enough and fortunate enough to talk to I learned something from that person and when I'm in it, I'm in it and I'm just, I think, oh my gosh, this was the best episode ever. This was my favorite episode ever. This was the best conversation. And it's so incredible to me to be able to have that experience. And certainly when I get to talk to people that I never met before and I get to talk to them about what they're doing and and get new ideas, it's incredible. But I don't know, there's something really special about doing podcasts with people that I know really well. So like the episode I did with my mom or my mom and my daughter, good friends, my sister-in-law, Leah, and I can interact with those people in an entirely different way. There's just something magical about it to me. And that's what this episode was like with Abby, with my friend Abby, who's just an incredible person and really just an expert in her field. We talked about trauma and betrayal in marriage. We talked about, um, well, we talked about marriage in general, but we also at one point went into some of Abby's personal experiences with grief and loss, which um, I really appreciate the fact that we talked about it because I was there when Abby's mom was sick. Well, when first when her sister was sick and she lost her sister, her only sibling, and then she lost her mom. And I could say firsthand that as a, as a spectator watching Abby go through it, the incredible grace and the incredible Amunah Bitachon that she displayed throughout was so inspiring. And watching her go through that wasn't just so powerful and, and inspiring, really. That's really the word for it. Anyways, okay, so I want to get into the podcast, though, before, uh, before I do. Um, if you would like to support the podcast, email me at a deeper conversation 120 at gmail.com. Consider sponsoring an episode. Consider becoming a monthly donator. Go to maverickpodcasting.com. Click on the link to my page. You can donate there like a one-time donation or monthly. Think about like how much value you get from this podcast. Like what would you pay for it to listen? Um, it takes a lot to put out these episodes. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of money. Um, so I really appreciate everybody who does donate, who sponsors, and who supports the podcast. You can also go to applepodcast.com and leave a five-star rating, write a review. It really does help the podcast also. Um, and of course, I love to hear from you. So feedback, questions, comments, please email me at a deeper conversation 120 at gmail.com. And with that, we will get on with the episode. This is A Deeper Conversation, the podcast for Jewish women. Welcome.
Hey, Abby, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Ochabed. I'm so happy to be here with you today. I am so excited. As we said before this started, this is our opportunity to catch up just as much as anything else, because we are good friends. And a lot of times I have people on this podcast that I never met, but with you, this is like, yay, I get to talk to my friend, Abby. So I'm so excited. So I obviously know you, but my audience does not. So before we get started, maybe if you could tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are right now. Sure. So I grew up in a very close-knit, loving family in that gorgeous city, my hometown of Vancouver, BC, um, where there's more bikes than cars and not because of poverty. (laughs) It's just this wonderfully sort of idyllic childhood looking back. Um, How I grew up in terms of my family, I think in my family, there was a lot of emphasis on social justice, tikkun olam, being in the Jewish community. My family was very involved in the Jewish community in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. My parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents. Um, and there's like a lot of conversation about community work and uh, advocacy. And so that was sort of like how we would start our day with our Cheerios. <laughs> Let's talk about what's going on in the world and which vulnerable people we need to help today. Um, so that's, I think, sort of... Um, in thinking like my early beginnings, there's if you could think of that just in this beautiful cocoon of Vancouver is really like how I reflect upon my on my childhood. Mm. And then now you're no longer in Vancouver, but between Vancouver and where you are right now, um, maybe tell us just a little bit about your professional background, like how you got to be a therapist. I know you also have a background in girls education. So maybe just a little bit about where you've been and where you've worked and all the expertise that you have now under your belt. Yeah, absolutely. So from Vancouver, and then I went to Montreal. Mm-hmm. Um, I went there for university and we stayed for for almost a decade and a half. Um, and when I was there, I was started off teaching, um, sort of part of the family legacy. And I was working in high school and in seminary, um, which my first original passion was teaching English um, and being an English teacher. And then sort of in my later 20s, I was reevaluating what really spoke to me about the teaching profession. Um, And when I really got down to the core of it, it was more about the connection and connecting with people and um, being able to speak with the girls and impart um, sort of thoughts and hear their thoughts and hold space and all of that. And I was like, hmm, well, that's less about like writing essays and more about just, you know, connecting with others. And so from then there, I got my uh, master's in marriage and family therapy. And it's my professional life has taken a bit of a interesting trajectory um, and into a specialty of trauma and addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that you taught in mainstream base Yaakov and also Hasidic schools as well. So you sort of have this like broad experience across the Jewish community coming from Vancouver, being in Montreal. Um, and having sort of like, I don't want to say your finger in a lot of pies, but like really sort of cultural experience in a lot of different Jewish communities, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, in Vancouver, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of different types of Jews and a lot of different types of exposure. And then moving to the East Coast of Canada and um, being able to be more immersed in a larger Jewish community was very interesting. And then I taught at one point, I was in six different institutions. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. yeah. And I thought that was just really fabulous, just connecting with the different communities and made some really close friends in the Hasidic community. 
And my kids went to Hasidic daycare and spoke Yiddish and my grandparents love that. And it was, <laughs> you know, and now I'm in Muncie, New York, and that's also just been a really fabulous move. Right. It's so funny. Like as you're talking, I guess I didn't realize this, how much you and I have in common. I mean, first of all, obviously I started off as a teacher and I had sort of the same realization that you did a little bit, which is like, maybe not what you said where you love the connection part, but when I was teaching and I would see sort of things that were going on with the kids and the struggles that they were having in the classroom. And I just had this overwhelming feeling that like I was a band-aid in the classroom and I, you know, you have the parents come in for parent teacher conferences and sort of see the family dynamics and I kind of felt like I really wanted to talk to this person when my student was three years old and they were, you know, starting their family dynamics and creating the communication styles that, you know, were affecting the kid now. And that's sort of how I went into, you know, I went into counseling, but also just the experience of having lived in different communities where I've lived in small, small communities like Vancouver, like Rochester, and then big communities like Brooklyn and Queens. And now I'm doing the midsize Midwest community. You're in a big community like Muncie, but just having that sort of broad experience of different types of Jews, different communities, I think is, is so helpful, especially for podcasts like this, which hopefully a lot of people are going to be listening to from around the world. So let me just ask you with that background in girls education, I know we're going to go and talk about marriage and betrayal and trauma and addiction and all those kinds of things. But even like I said, when I started off as a counselor, it was really because I saw things in the classroom that, you know, either the parents were doing or that, you know, there's some sort of breakdown somewhere that a lot of problems are anticipated. So what do you see like in the way that we're educating our girls as an educator that is either setting them up for success or maybe not setting them up for success that we're doing right, that we're doing wrong? Like, what do you see? I think it's it's a tough question um, in the sense that I don't, I don't have an answer. I, I, I can't think of an answer um, because, you know, I, I don't want to, not just, I don't want to, I think that the systems, different systems, different school systems, like I've had exposure to like try their best, you know, but what I saw um, that comes up for me and I see this parallel um, in my therapy when I work with young women is the question of how to nurture individual personalities and help young women sort of individuate and choose and be confident with their passions and their life goals in a way that still, I'm going to call it like toes the line and like, or like whatever, um, you know, when we talk about conformity, I think every single uh, community will have their standards of conformity, right? And so even, you know, I, I worked in public school, I have background in public school. And so even within that confine, there's sort of expectations of how you perform and how you um, sort of act. And so the question is, especially at that really fragile sort of psychosocial stage of like, who am I? What do I want to be? Who, who do I want to be? How do we as educators nurture um, you know, the, the future generation of, of young of young women. Um, an anecdote that comes to mind was when I was, uh, the, the girls were in, um, it was grade 11, and we were doing a uh, unit on personal statements. And it was part of the government curriculum, but I was like, okay, let's do, let's make it useful and let's make it for your seminary applications. Mm-hmm. And widespread panic, widespread panic, because what do I write and what do I say and what do I project? And I don't know. And what do you, what do you mean a personal statement? Mm-hmm. And 
people were like, could I pretend to be like 26 and a doctor? And I was like, no, like that, that's like a fiction piece. Like we're writing a personal statement and it was a real struggle. And it wasn't just that year. It, I did that for a few years as part of that unit. And I think some of it might be that normative, like, who am I, where am I? But the question to me is how, how does the system um, help that process of finding the individual strengths? Do you have an answer? Um, well, you know, where I go to is, so I'm supposed to be asking the questions here, but okay. <laughs> you know, I guess I wonder if a system is even capable of doing that. If our school system in the from community Baruch Hashem, it's grown so much, even, I mean, from when I was a kid, I'm 49 years old. So when I went to school um, in the eighties and the nineties, it was, you know, more recent since the Holocaust, the Jewish community was much smaller, kind of everybody, uh, you know, and I can only speak for, you know, the Ashkenazi community in New York, but everybody knew everybody else pretty much, you know, Mm -hmm. that is not the case anymore. And schools are just overflowing with kids. And I know you live in Muncie, this is a huge problem in places like Muncie Lakewood, where, you know, they can't build schools fast enough, Baruch Hashem, I mean, it's really incredible to see. But I, like, I wonder if really it's an organizational or we're looking to an organization to to solve a problem that really should be solved in the family. Do you know what I mean? 100%. And, yeah. So I feel like a little bit it's like that where parents have outsourced educating their girls about certain things to the institutions. And really, it isn't the job of the institution. So no matter how good of a job they do, it's not going to be a good job because it's not really their role or their place to talk to girls about relationships or their bodies or, you know, things that girls struggle with. I agree with you hundred percent. I do find that that at least, well, I'm now reflecting the Montreal school system where because of the French laws and things like that school, they went till 6 PM. So you're talking about the girls would be out of the house from seven 30 in the morning until, you know, if they're taking the bus home six 30 or seven at night. Um, and we see that problem in the boys school that the, they're out all day, right? They're, it's great. Right. They're getting a, a broad and, and important education or immersive education, but they're not, the time at home is mm-hmm. um, minimal uh, in terms of the relation of, to the school. But I'm wondering, I think that those super core issues need to be dealt with in the family structure and be kid dealt with, you know, on an individual level, child to parent, but also within the sibling um, mm-hmm. structure, you know, like talking with, and, uh, there's a few girls, like having a girl's conversation, a boy's conversation, talking with older siblings, younger siblings is really important, but, you know, it is challenging. If you have a classroom full of 30 girls, how are you as an educator zoning in and like nurturing and bringing out that every single girl's potential you essentially can't, but at the same time, I think it's important to be mindful of creating a school culture where people do feel safe to sort of explore um, the different parts of themselves mm-hmm. instead of just, you know, walking through and sort of waking up when they're 30 and being like, what, who am I? How did I get here? Like, right. I have no idea what this world is. Right. And that's sort of what I see in my practice of, um, you know, especially when Baruch Hashem, a lot of our girls get married young and then they start families, which is a huge blessing, right? It's a huge blessing, Uh, but it's, it's going through really different stages of development and just sort of attuning to that as sort of like the adults, how are we nurturing that process is right. Right. Well, speaking to that 30 year old woman who comes to you and says like, what what on earth happened? Like, what are some of the things that you see? Like, what are some of the, what were, you know, 
people may be falling through the cracks or what are some of the typical issues that you see that are really, um, I don't, I don't want to say widespread because it's not widespread. Obviously as therapists, I think one of the traps that we fall into is thinking of, oh my gosh, everybody's an alcoholic. You know, we used to say that to my uncle Shia that he thinks everybody's an alcoholic because he deals with alcoholics all day long. Right. But you know, when you do see broken marriages, you start to get this like dis, you know, disproportionate feeling about the state of marriage and the from community. So obviously it's not that, but I guess some of the things that you're seeing that are prevalent that are coming up. I mean, I think and and that's a really important point because I work in a very specific subset and like very immersed in trauma and addiction. And so I'm seeing like really extreme ends of um, sort of at the point where people's lives have actually gotten to the point of unraveling. But um, speaking back more to when I was more involved, let's say in seminary, or I was working more with young women, like sort of either as they're starting out their journey at the beginning of marriage or a few years into marriage, which I don't do so much in my practice anymore, but you know, it was more just like, I would see lower level anxiety or stress Mm -hmm. without being able to identify that. And so, you know, we could name it, oh, maybe you're overworking, maybe you're tired from the baby, oh, you're postpartum, oh, you're, you know, whatever it is. Um, But when we actually got down to it, it had to do with not really knowing and being in tune with oneself and one's needs. And so if you don't know yourself and you don't know what you need, it's really hard to take positive action to take care of yourself. And then you compound that by being a wife and a mother and working um, and then over several years. And it can lead to sort of a sense of, I'm going to call it unease or unrest. And mm-hmm. this sort of like, what what am I doing? And what do I, what do I need? And what are my options? Not necessarily for for a different path or a different life, but like, how can I maximize myself um, while still being true to my values and my goals and the choices that I've made up until this point? Right. And I think sort of what you're saying is that a lot of times girls are sort of on almost like a conveyor belt where the choices are sort of made for them. And and like you said, it's not to say that these are wrong choices. I mean, I've certainly from the other side, um, being outside the from community, you see just the total chaos that goes on with dating and relationships. And I mean, we both know people who have really been the victim of secular culture when it comes to like love and marriage and relationships. But for from girls also, it could just sort of seem like they turn around when they're 25, 27, like, oh, like I went to school, I went to seminary, I got married, I have three kids, I'm an OT or whatever. And was this something that I wanted to do? Was this a choice that I made? Or was it just sort of chosen for me? And then now, you know, when you have three kids, you're a little bit, I don't know, not limited when your choices, but you certainly want it to be proactive instead of reactive kind of lifestyle, right? Absolutely. And that's what I said, like at the beginning, I think it's just a really tough question because just to echo your statement, um, you know, there's so much chaos, like you Mm -hmm. said, like that word. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, taking your time going through all the different stages isn't necessarily going to bring that meaning and bring that clarity. You know, I know people who have sort of traveled through life for decades and still haven't found um, that sense of, yes, this is who I am. Right. And so that's why I don't think it's a formula um, Mm -hmm. necessarily to follow, but if, if we can teach our girls, our daughters, our students to, to tune in to what am I feeling? What am I thinking from an early age? Mm -hmm. Um, even if it's just feelings awareness, even if it's just 
Um, like, what do I need from this friend? You know, like as a 10 year old, you can have a conversation with your daughter, like what, you know, she comes home, she's super frustrated. Okay. Why are you frustrated? I don't know. I just, I'm annoyed. Okay. Well, instead of letting her go off to play, have her tune in and say, well, okay, well, what do you need? What do you need from me? What do you need from yourself? You know? And so when we are equipping girls with those types of tools, they're able, I think better, better able to deal with that, what you're sort of calling that conveyor belt or that sort of societal expectation in maintaining a sense of true self. Mm-hmm. All right. I think that's so important. That's so important. And it really is like sort of, we said it's the parents or the mother's job really ultimately to be able to provide that, not the schools, which is really, it's hard. I mean, it's really mm-hmm. challenging. And so like you sort of described, you know, something that a, a typical from girl might go through or a Jewish girl where she, um, you know, is, at 30 saying, how did I get here? Or what did I do or struggling? But in your practice specifically, what you, I know you deal a lot of like sort of extreme situations like betrayal and trauma and addiction and all those kinds of things, which unfortunately, if somebody who's listening to this, hasn't had it themselves, they may know somebody who's in that situation. Um, I always wonder this as, as a marriage therapist, like you sometimes are presented with situations that are just so painful and so difficult. And you think, you know, and I know a lot of people think like getting rid of the marriage will get rid of the pain and things will be better. And a lot of times, sometimes that is the case. Um, and sometimes it's not the case. A lot of times it's the case that you're just training in one set of pain for another. Do you think that, I mean, do you think every marriage can be saved? Do you think there's some things that you can never come back from? And I guess I would ask the question on the flip side also, which is, what are some things that some people might say like, oh, you know, this is my red line, but really, no, it's not necessarily a red line and that people really can work through these things. Do you know what I mean? So sort of asking me the opposite question. I think, um, you know, in my role as a marriage therapist, I would never tell someone like, get, get out. You need to, you need to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, even in the most extreme cases, the reason for that is, every situation is so complex and everybody could handle different things. And, you know, I remember telling, um, having this conversation once and saying like, I'm not, I'm not going to be the one with you at three in the morning when your child's vomiting. And this one has another stomach virus and you're by yourself on the bathroom floor. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to be there for you. You know, this needs any decision that a woman makes has to come from her own inner strength. Um, And sometimes that's really painful to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, that we have to make sort of empowered choices mm-hmm. now in terms of like, I guess more broadly, what you're asking, can people come back from the brink? Um, I have seen countless times, very close up, um, people come back from really horrible betrayal in a way that is beautiful, more connected and stronger. Now it mm-hmm. takes a lot of work, like a lot of work. And it's not like a six week course of an intensive. <laughs> right. It's, it's, we're okay. talking years. Um, mm-hmm. You know, generally we say that the first two years um, from discovery of an addiction or betrayal is considered um, early recovery. And mm-hmm. in that time, it's extremely painful time, um, usually more hardship than sort of glowing, glowing, glittering moments. Mm-hmm. Um and after that, sort of as you reach a five point 
five-year mark or 10-year mark, then you can really look back and just look at the strengths and the beauty. Um, I think that's really, really difficult to do if somebody is in active addiction um, or is um, obviously in the case of we call intimate partner violence, right? Domestic violence. That's that's not what I'm talking about when we're talking about an active situation where people might be really unsafe. Um, Mm -hmm. But in terms of, you know, finding finding out certain things about your spouse or having certain mental health conditions, um, addiction, these types of things, personality disorders, you know, I really do feel that um, people, if they have the willingness and they have the proper appropriate support, almost everything you can come back from. Really? That's very inspiring. Um, I would imagine it could be that some people listening to this will feel disheartened as well, just to think that like, maybe I should have tried harder, or maybe I could have pulled this back. Like, where's that line? I think that it's an individual line. I think that we see there's divorce in the Torah for a reason, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I I definitely think that there's situations where it's more appropriate, it's healthier um, for a person and for a family system the, mm-hmm. to divorce. But I can't speak to that. There's not like one plus one equals two situation like this and this would mean divorce. I feel that, you know, like I said, if there's issues of safety or personal safety or, um, you know, and sometimes people um, will just be, I want to say totally incompatible, but there is something about finding like deep meaning in your marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that that's really a, a personal choice. I think if somebody's made that choice and um, I, I don't, I don't, and I don't believe in the concept of regret because that's a, of, of course, I regret things. I, I understand that's a, that's a, that's a human nature thing, but, you know, I don't know very many people um, Jewish women with families who are just like, all right, let's just throw away this marriage and on to the next. Right. I usually see that by the time somebody is separated or divorcing, it's taken a lot of thought, a lot of individual strength, um, a lot of consideration of the different family dynamics and what the needs of the children are. And it's, it's a really hard move to make. And so if someone's made that choice, it's the choice that needed to happen is usually what I see in, in, in my experience and in sort of the environment that I live and work in. Right. I wonder, because you, I think you deal with more critical or serious issues within marriages than I do. Like I I don't really deal a little bit, but certainly don't specialize in addictions and these kinds of things that really can make like family life untenable for a lot of women. I used to think when I, when I first started working with women and some, somebody would come to me with like a marriage issue, I thought like, you know, I'm going to be like Arna Cohen and I'm going to help this person find Shalom. And like, I, you know, had this like very sort of idealistic um, feeling about what my role was here. Um, it's also now that I say it over, sounds a little arrogant, <laughs> like whatever, but um, I was recently talking to a woman who was in her second marriage and she was saying to me that you know, she and and she knows lots of other women who are in the situation where had it not been for quote unquote, well-meaning friends, advisors, or bond and whatever, they would have left a toxic situation earlier. And they stayed longer than they should have been because people were, you know, sort of well-meaning trying to help them make it work when really they should have called it a while ago, 
You know what I mean? And, and, but then on the other hand, you do see like this, this just extreme explosion of divorce in our community, which was never the case. So like, where is that? Is it that people are calling it too quickly? Is that people are not getting the right support? Is it that as a society, we're just not as like psychologically or emotionally healthy so that we're not necessarily capable of having strong relationships and working through the tough times? Like what, what is it? Um, in terms of the explosion of divorces, what when you're saying that, I'm first thinking of like this just sort of um, I don't say trend because that sounds horrible, but like you know of younger mm-hmm. people getting divorced quickly. Is, is, yeah, is that the, yeah. Um, and so uh, there's two thoughts simultaneously. One is um, how much of um, the more general society, how much more are we affected? Um, mm-hmm. by that, you know, there are obviously more insular communities that have nothing to do with more general secular society. Um, mm-hmm. I still wonder sort of like the the world energy and how it sort of creeps in and, and affects even the most insular um, communities. However, you know, m- most people like live on a spectrum. And so how much of that um, sort of culture of disposable or easy um, relationships and expectation for the relationships to be easy and really uh, just magical Mm -hmm. and this sort of like Instagram perfect relationship. How much is that seeping into our culture? Because Mm -hmm. marriage is not Instagram perfect, right? Um, And it's really hard work. And so what is the role of teaching our kids from an early age resilience? Um, You know, I speak to, to parents about this often about that, letting your kids struggle, um, Mm -hmm. letting your kids have difficult feelings, not saving your children. You know, we, we know the term, the helicopter parent, not everybody's heard of the lawnmower parent. So that's, Mm -hmm. you know, like literally like taking out any obstacle from a child's path and that preparation for marriage and relationships starts when the kids too, and they're Mm -hmm. upset and they can't get what they want. Right. And so, um, and that I think is part of a, a general societal, um, push and sort of handling our kids with kid gloves, um, mm-hmm. which is like not wanting to rock the boat. I think that there is some pressure um, within, you know, our more observant communities of not wanting to turn our kids off and mm-hmm. like sort of like keep them in the fold by by being maybe too permissive um, mm-hmm. and um, making everything, uh, I don't say like fun and glowing, but like it's hard work. Life is hard work um, and life is sad. Uh, mm-hmm. a lot of the time and difficult and there's stress and grief and um, pain and that's normal, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so that, that, that's the first thought. And the second thought is, is just also how much we really, we really know or are open to dealing with people's challenges and how much we hide people's challenges at the early process of dating mm-hmm. um, just because we want to, we're scared, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that- Scared of the shift crisis, you mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I, I think, you know, that people, some people will avoid, you know, maybe getting help or diagnoses um, mm-hmm. because they don't want that stigma attached to them or to a family. Um, but then what we see are people coming into- marriage a bit of a mess um, because they need help that they're not getting. And then they'll get that help maybe in their twenties or their thirties as they're sort of stumbling through and be like, Oh, I have had 
I'm going to choose something really benign. I don't think this is a huge issue, but let's just, you know, undiagnosed ADHD my whole life. And like, I finally took medication as a 25 year old and feel so wonderful and functional and amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately coming in with low self-esteem and, um, you know, different behavioral things that have been learned through, mm-hmm. you know, not necessarily getting the support that we need, that that person needs. Um, and that creates rocky situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of, I, I sort of see that come up like this. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't want to look at it. Um, mm-hmm. And now I am, or I'm forced to, because I'm in this relationship or it becomes unmanageable. Um, and people could either choose to go through that or get divorced. Um, and so, and sometimes people think that marriage, I see this a lot. Marriage is going to fix their issue. So like I struggled with this particular behavior for six years, but when I got married, I thought like my marriage, my wife was just going to fix this problem. Mm-hmm. Um, no, you know, that's not the case. Um, right. Yeah. Right. It could be, there's like a six month hit of adrenaline where they're able to manage whatever it is. But then after that, now you have the problem that you came in with, plus also a family <laughs> to deal with and it makes it worse. Totally. Um, Can I ask you a personal question? And this wasn't something that I had sent you. It was like, you know, I usually do, you know, kind of have a pre-conversation that I do with everybody who comes on. But, and so if you don't want to talk about this, we'll cut it out afterwards. But you talked a little bit about grief and the fact that life is hard. And I know, you know, you lost your mom who I adored and your only sister. And I watched you personally go through like, what to me seemed like just an unmanageable amount of grief with like this, just like, it seems like from the outside, grace, emuna, bitachon, strength, like what's the, what do you have to offer? Like, like having seen you go through that, I feel like there's a lesson that you could give my audience because I like it was, it's, you're not just saying that people go through grief and like, you know, it's not personal to you. Do you know what I mean? Like you've been there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and thanks. Um, for those words and, you know, bringing my, my mom and my sister, Danny, into the conversation because, you know, they're still very much present with me in my life. And that it was horrible, you know, at age 28, I lost my sister and at age 30, I lost my mother. My sister was my only sibling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just didn't, for, for whatever reason <laughs> that I, I don't know the formula, if I could package it and sell it, I, I, I would. Um, but during those times, I felt the closest to God I've ever felt in my life. Um, I felt like there was just nothing to do but be completely dependent and close to Hashem, to God at that time. Um, and so I, I don't want to say I was like on a, on a spiritual high, um, but I definitely felt like as I was going through those crises, sort of back to back um, with really intense illness and really intense involvement with that illness, um, I, I really just sort of leaned into that spirituality and connection that I had with God um, that, that I grew up with, but I worked hard to cultivate also even more in, in my, in my early sort of twenties. And so I think it's unfortunate. And I was reflecting on this recently, like that I was, I don't want to, you know, be in those horrible situations in order to feel in this like cozy God embrace, you know, which, which really, I want to be able to tap into that connection and that reliance, like all the time. 
Um, I don't know how people could do that or, or, or if like, maybe that's when just people end up like living on mountains in some sort of esoteric, like dream or something like that. But, you know, just, just that concept of like, I really want that urgency of connection. I really want that urgency of dependence. I want that urgency to pray. I want that, that feeling of like, I need you in my life because I don't know what's going to be. And you're like my only constant. Um, and, uh, you know, so, but I, I, I definitely think that that starts with the early um, developing of a relationship with your, with God. You know, some people who I work with will call it higher power, a spiritual connection. You know, it's not just a Jewish discussion. It's, it's, you know, what, what is my spiritual potential and how am I fortifying myself spiritually? Um, and I know that actually, you, you know, you asked at the end of your podcast, like, what is the lesson to take away? And like a main like life lesson. And, and, and I do think my experiences with grief and pain have um, come down to that idea of like, sort of in God, we trust, but not on our money, on our dollar bills, but Mm -hmm. in not in like that formalized way. And like a really like, how do I make this an active relationship? What do I need to put into this relationship? I work a lot with trust. I work a lot with betrayal. And so getting into those real discussions of how do we build trust Obviously, it's different on a personal relational level, like with a spouse or with a friend or with whatever. But, you know, that concept of understanding trust and dependency and leaning into um, belief, um, you know, is is I think a really important one that doesn't have to only come up when you go through grief and pain. And I think just the acceptance that life is really, really hard sometimes. um, And that's sort of what it's supposed to be without feeling really depressed about that concept. And just sort of leaning into that, like, yeah, this is a really tough period. What can, what, what, what tools do I have? What tools do I need? What else do I need to make this a little easier? Um, and not being sort of scared when it gets really hard. Um, and just sort of, and I'm a big self-care and like, how do I, then like external support person also. Um, yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. It really does. And it actually leads me to another question. So first of all, thank you for like going there with me and, and my audience. Um, I like, I could say, I could say a lot more nice things about you, Abby, than even just what I said, because I was there with you when you were going through that. So I, I really appreciate that perspective, but you said something that made me think like when you're in a situation with a couple where there's been like a, a really big betrayal you're dealing with mostly from clients. I mean, I don't, I don't even know that if that's true, but let's say you have a front line or or not even how much does Amuna and Bitachon play in to the therapeutic element of your treatment? Like how much is that clinically relevant to talk about Amuna and Bitachon when there's been betrayal or addiction or something like that? Does that even come up? Yeah. Tough sort of tight wire rope walk there question, because, you know, as clinicians, we are taught not to bring um, sort of anything into the room, you know, as a from woman whose Judaism and religiosity is really important to me. I would never want to bring in something that would feel like this is my personal value being brought into the therapy room. Um, At the same time, when we work even with the 12 steps, which is completely secular, there's so much spirituality. Um, And when we talk about addiction, it's often said it's filling a God-sized hole. Um, and the, you know, the addiction is a disease of 
disconnection, right? And so we use that language even when it's not in a Jewish context, even of connecting to, you know, spirituality to God. Um, and so when it allows, and just even encouraging and fostering that relationship and that dialogue with God for my clients. And so I think a lot of people, um, especially, you know, I do work, I do work right now, it's mostly exclusively in the, from community, in the Hasidic community, and just even quite like getting into the conversation can feel really uncomfortable, because I think a lot of people are just taught, like, not the question, just accept, like, yeah, everything is for the best. Yes, it's true. Everything's for the best, but allowing for a range of emotions mm -hmm. because, um, in, in dealing with your relationship with, with God, um, instead of just shutting down, because, you know, obviously when we talk about feelings, when we're shutting down, let's say anger, or we're shutting down grief, or we're shutting down feelings of betrayal, we don't have just like a push button. Let's just shut down this section. And I'm just going to keep connection, happiness, and passion. Mm -hmm right? What ends up happening when we shut down certain emotions is that the whole range of emotion gets shorter, or we're not able to tap into other happier emotions. And so really, by, by leaning into those difficult conversations, difficult emotions, we're actually able to access the, the happier, sort of more, more tolerable emotions. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what, you know, I would be really mindful of, you know, I think there's a lot of people in the space, there's wonderful rabbis here. Um, uncle was a, a huge role model for me. Um, but in terms of Rabbi Torsky, but in terms of, um, you know, who can speak to the 12 steps and addiction and trauma and sort of how it fits into the framework. Um, but I think it's really interesting and really humbling to watch people's sort of spiritual journey, whether they're the addict or the partner of an addict, um, sort of find their way through um, through their their relationship with God. I think mm -hmm. some people come in with religious trauma, um, and that's a real thing that we have to really address in the room. And so just if someone's coming in with from religious trauma and being like, okay, we'll just connect to God, like they're going to be like, bye, see you, like find me another therapist right? Like that's not really. What's an example of religious trauma that you've seen? Um, you know, people who feel that there was, well, sometimes people experience trauma literally in sort of religious or school institutions. Right. Um, By a person in the institution. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. And so um, maybe somebody who is in a position of authority um, betrayed them, um, abuse them, something like that. Okay. So that's, there's like an actual mm -hmm. person or relationship sort of to direct anger at, but sometimes it's just more of like an institutional thing of like expectations and not being able to meet expectations and feeling unworthy or less than, mm -hmm. um, you know, some people are able to go through certain, to meet those expectations easier than others. And if somebody's struggling with, different mental health issues um, and being told like, if you don't do such and such, you're bad, or this punishment is going to happen or something like that, that mm -hmm. could be extremely stressful and create a traumatic response. All right. Well, so many things to think about. Okay. So and with the goal of this podcast, not being two hours long, <laughs> I do want to ask you something that has been on my mind lately. 
sort of just in general, something that I've been working with is a lot of the things that um, either as therapists or the psychological community or just, you know, as we as a society have become more comfortable with psychological language or terminology, we tend to throw around terms very easily without really thinking about what they are or just sort of making sort of broad statements. So like we say things like, use words like triggers, boundaries, emotional health. Um, I have a whole list of them, you know, sort of these statements that, um, you know, have a place certainly, but also can be overused. And I think that one of them is, at least I find this is narcissism, where I have so many times somebody will come in and sit down in my office and say, oh, my mother's a narcissist, my spouse is a narcissist, this person's a narcissist. And I, a lot of times I think that narcissism has just become code for like bad me dose. You know what I mean? Like, you don't like this behavior. So you call that person a narcissist so that, you know, um, it just sort of almost paints somebody as a bad guy. And I know that, you know, there certainly is a narcissistic personality disorder and, you know, maybe I'll talk about that in a different podcast with somebody else, but from your perspective, like if somebody's coming in with a difficult spouse and they immediately label them a narcissist, like what are some of the other things that might be going on? where they would just sort of default to that, but it might not be that. I definitely agree with you that I think one of the reasons why people do that is because it feels really, it's, it's more securing. Um, mm-hmm. Like if I put a label on this, then I know what I'm dealing with. But mm-hmm. the fact is, is that, um, you know, there, there are, there are sort of diagnostic criteria. And even in my, in my um, sort of area, I don't do, I, I don't diagnose people. Um, I don't have the ability to do that. Um, but there are certain like check off the boxes, but what's really um, challenging about that is that then you'll see, oh, but it might be a personality disorder, but it could be, but there's different boxes also in this column in that column. And what I see a lot is that um, with complex PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, you'll have a lot of the same sort of boxes to check as mm-hmm. um, that something with somebody with narcissistic traits will have. And um really where that, what that comes from is, you know, um, a feeling complex PTSD, if any, if you don't know, um, is that when you have not a single traumatic event, let's say like a car accident or a fire or something, but you have repeated traumatic events, usually in the context of a relationship um, mm-hmm. that really dysregulate and cause a uh, trauma response. Um, and essentially what people who are uh, you know, it might be due to a neglectful caregiver, an abusive childhood situation, um, living in, you know, abject poverty. Um, it usually has to do with not having our basic needs, physical and emotional needs met. And so what happens when people don't have their needs met is that they learn, I have to fend for myself. Mm-hmm. I am the only person who can take care of me and people aren't trustworthy. And, you know, as a, as a three-year-old that might might look like, um, you know, pushing somebody out of the way to like get your food or something like that. And as a 30 year old, that there might be a 30 year old equivalent to that, but it's really coming from a sort of survival response of like, I can't trust anybody and I need to have my needs met. And mm-hmm. that can come off as really narcissistic and lack of empathy and unthoughtful when you're in a family system, but it's, it's really a, a dysregulated, um, sort of neuro neurobiological system that's that's been affected and then helping somebody recognize that that's where it's from presumably would give the person treatment options right where you can sort of address that 
Yeah. I mean, I, because most of my, like my, my particular training is working with partners of, mm-hmm. uh, at, and obviously I can, I can work with in the confines of addiction. And I work a lot with couples mm-hmm. who are struggling with addiction, but my specific training is with partners. And so, you know, I think that it might feel more hopeful to be like, okay, well, this is a, something that can be unlearned maybe, or with recovery, but at the same time, they're still experiencing um, being in a relationship with somebody who is presenting with lack of empathy, um, you know, hurtful comments, narcissism, they're not feeling taken care of in the relationship. So mm-hmm. labels do f- help people feel secure, but it's not like there's a pill for that. There's no pill for complex PTSD. That's like, okay, now he's going to be better or she's going right. to be better. So, um, but I think that it is important to have that. And I think as clinicians, it's really important. I see this a lot uh, in terms of misdiagnosis, you know, someone could come in to somebody's office and they're completely dysregulated. They're not attending to their personal um, hygiene there. They're snooping in their spouse's phone. They've totally neglected their kids for the few days in terms of like leaving them at friends' houses and whatever, not actual neglect, but, you know, not tuned in. They're dissociated. And if you don't know that that person just discovered that they might have just, you know, stumbled upon um, their spouse's enormous betrayal, you might think that this person's suffering from some sort of psychotic break or schizophrenia or something like that. And I think that, you know, going to people who um, sort of are are specialized in these areas or just even clinicians when we're seeing people come in because you don't know who's coming in your door all the time saying, well, what's really going on instead of being quick to label or quick to diagnose even within the, um, you know, therapeutic community is really, really important. Right, right. I think that's so important. And there's also, you know, like in any medical professional, you have pressure from insurance to like give a diagnosis and that's not necessarily so helpful. So let me ask you a question. Um, final question before I ask you my final question, which is imagine somebody who's listening to this who has just discovered a betrayal, like severe betrayal, let's say, um, found something on her spouse's phone maybe, or got information, what would you say to this person who just discovered something and just experienced that betrayal? I mean, I think that uh, for sure that they should know that there's support for them. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that so much of betrayal, especially in the religious from community, there's so much shame Mm -hmm. um, and it feels incredibly isolating and um, it's almost impossible to heal in that context of, of shame and isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so finding the support with a trained and specialized therapist, there's, you know, groups, clinical groups, like group therapy, and there's also, you know, peer support groups, um, 12 step groups, um, that can be very, um, helpful. And there's, you know, there's, there's, it's for a general population and there's, there's that from connection also, And I think that it's just important for that person to know that there's different stages of processing betrayal. So, you know, you're speaking to maybe somebody who's just listening and just found out, but maybe somebody is, you know, six months in. And so just to speak to those different stages of betrayal, there's actually like, um, you know, six different stages um, of recovery from betrayal. And so when you asked me at the beginning, like, can people come back? Yeah, they Mm -hmm. can, but there's this um, sort of acknowledging that I'm going to be going through the different stages. Um, if I don't know if we have time, if, if you want me to, yeah, to mention what yeah. they are, um, actually the first stage 
is a pre-discovery stage. So it's a, it's it's when we and these were identified by Dr. Stephanie Carnes. Um, so it's not it's not my own research, but mm-hmm. um, it was a pre-discovery stage, and so that's when actually we know things or we feel things in our bodies. And so people could be walking around with this stage for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's like a crisis stage, decision-making, information gathering. And so that's when I was just talking about that person who's coming in looking mm-hmm. like completely dysregulated might be that earlier stage two. There's shock, questions of self-worth. How did I get here? Like, is this really my life? And then there's a grief stage, grief of an ambivalence and then repair and then growth. Mm-hmm. And so um, just like how, you know, we've spoken a little bit about more typical grief, that's not a linear process. Mm It's not a linear process. It's a cyclical process. And so, you know, for most of these um, stages, you can see people going through them with different types of intensity, but it's, it's cyclical. And so, you know, I, my, my answer to that person is with the right support and with the knowledge and sort of the psychoeducation and the understanding of like sort of what you're going through and the appropriate support, things do get easier and things there can be enormous growth, whether someone stays, chooses to stay in the relationship or not. Um, mm-hmm. That would be a true statement. Right. So the growth could happen regardless of whether or not there's repair or repair maybe doesn't necessarily look like, okay, now we're, we're staying married and we're happily married. Repair could be, you know, we co-parent and we don't hate each other, you know, absolutely. but, but repair could also be individual repair. When you go through right. betrayal trauma, um, you know, there's so much, that's lost in terms of a loss of sense of self. Um, There's so much grief. And, you know, a lot of times people will see that they're not uh, able to be in friendships or family relationships or parent just as individuals, as much as they want being in this really stressful situation. And so repair could just be, you know, tuning into yourself, actualizing who you want to be professionally as a parent and really nothing to do with, with a spouse, you know, most of the work that I do with my clients is, is it's their individual work. Yes, of course they're in a situation, but we don't spend the session talking about the spouse. We spend the session talking about the person and sort of how the experience has formed them and, and informed them in terms of their decisions and their personality and, and who they've become. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's so important. I feel like we, you know, just started a new conversation. <laughs> we just started a new podcast, but um, you know, there, there's definitely like just thinking about these stages. I have so many questions where I want to ask more about each of those. But just to sum up quickly, I do think like what you said that somebody going through betrayal needs to like not be looking for a quick solution or a quick answer or an immediate band aid. Like you said, it's not a six week intensive course that's gonna be the solution here. Finding somebody like yourself or somebody else. Um, who has experience, not just as a therapist, but specifically in betrayal. Like that's what I, what's coming through to me. Like I would not be able to deal with this in the way that you've just articulated because it's I don't have that specific training. So I think that that's really important. Okay. So before I ask you my last question, I guess I'll just ask you where people can reach you. Now, I know you don't, um, you're busy um, and you're not necessarily taking new individual clients now, but if somebody wants to find you, aside from the pages of Mishpacha, where you write, where else can they, where can they look you up? Um, we, they could check out my website. Um, there should be a contact us box, uh, abbydulia.com. Um, yeah, that would probably be the best way to contact me individually. I also work for an organization called Ray of Hope, um, which is an incredible 
nonprofit organization that supports um, survivors of childhood sexual abuse uh, it's for in, within the from community. Um, and so you can't necessarily ne contact me directly through that, but that's um, an organization I'm affiliated with as well. Right. And a good resource for people to know about. Yeah. Um, okay. So the last question that I ask every guest is based on uh, your life experience. If you could give Jewish women one message, what would it be? I don't know if I'm repeating myself from before, but I think it's that, okay. I think it's that, um, develop relationships. The, the most important relationship you're going to have, um, is with yourself, which sounds really sort of selfish and narcissistic sort of going on <laughs> in our previous conversation. But what I mean in that is sort of encompasses our whole discussion today. You'll have it. It's like, you know, tuning in to what our needs are, what our strengths are, what our abilities are, how am I in relationship with, with God? What is my spiritual connection? Um, who, who do I want to be as a, as a person, as a wife, as a mother? Um, mm -hmm. And just even asking yourself this question, these questions, because we don't always have answers. And I really do think that the answers change as we go through different stages and life experiences. Mm -hmm. um, but just having that sort of ongoing dialogue with ourselves and sort of, I would say holding ourselves accountable, but like really engaging in the conversations, a deeper conversation with ourselves, if you want to say it, like, and just sort of putting the spotlight back on, on us in order that we can really tune in and be able to give back and be able to connect with others um, in that way. And I, I, I just think that it, it encompasses every realm, the emotional, the physical, the, and the spiritual, we have to really attune to. And so whether that looks like, um, I, I, I happen to be really, if you're saying a lesson that I learned, I make time for that in my week. It's like a weekly process. And I'm not just like sitting on the couch meditating. It might look like just doing things that I know I like to do, going for lunch with friends, exercising, writing, um, you know, and sometimes things work and feel good and sometimes they don't. And if they feel good or if they don't, I'm like, well, why didn't it? And then that starts that organic process. It's not necessarily like now I'm going to think about my needs for the next 10 minutes, right? It's about just really reflecting on how we're growing up, which is a lifelong process, right? Until 120. Amazing. Thank you so much, Abby. This was incredible. It was so great to see you. It was so great to talk to you and have you on here. And it was just really educational and a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much.